Morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Uh, I'm Pastor Stephen DeWitt. I'm glad to be up here. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 15. We're going to start reading at verse 9. It's on page 362 in the Bibles provided for you. We're also projecting, projecting it up on the screen. Judges 15. So we've been doing this sermon series called Sunday School Stories. Today's the last one. Um, and we've been going back to some of these um, Bible stories that were taught to many of us in Sunday school uh, as kids growing up. And then uh, we're revisiting them, and we're finding that as we uh, revisit them, they have maybe some new things and some different things for us that we didn't maybe pick up when we were little kids. Uh, we pick up things that are kind of behind the, uh, the childhood almost cartoonish versions sometimes that we were taught. Um, so this morning we're looking at a guy who is easily one of my favorite Bible characters when I was growing up, Samson. What's not to like about Samson, right? A lot, actually. Um, a lot. And we're going to get into that. So, uh, Judges chapter 15, we're going to start reading at verse 9. Listen to God's word. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men, or sorry, yeah, then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Atam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them as they did to me, which should sound familiar. And they said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him up with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Phil, uh, Philistines came toward him shouting. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and the ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. And finding the, a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With the donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men, which somehow rhymes in English. <laughs> and when he, I mean, it's crazy, right? When he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakore, and is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. I would invite you, yeah, there he is. I would invite you uh, 
to read the rest of the story of Samson sometime today. I'm not promising you it's going to make you feel better about anything. Uh, it won't take you long. It's about 10 or 15 minutes. He, I mean, if you would have told me when I was a kid that Samson only gets four chapters in Scripture, I would have said, no way. Four chapters. He's a very, very minor character, and yet he gets a lot of attention, especially with kids, maybe especially with little boys in the 80s. I have no idea. But here's some reasons why I think Samson gets a lot of play, okay? He is a really, really fascinating character. There is no denying that. There is no getting around that. He has superhuman strength. He's a kind of Hercules. He's an incredible Hulk type of guy. He has a terrible temper, which is not great socially, but makes for great stories. Um, He's with a lot of women, also makes for great stories. And he's the victim of betrayal, like six or seven times in a row, and he refuses to learn his lesson about that. And, as we just heard, he can make a weapon out of just about anything. He's kind of a MacGyver that way. What a character, what a story, what on earth am I supposed to say about him? (laughs) That's my question. The challenge of Samson, or at least the challenge of preaching on Samson, comes with this question. What are we supposed to do with him? What are we supposed to do with this story? Because, uh, by all accounts, he was a terrible guy who did really, really terrible things. And one temptation, I think, would be to kind of walk straight past all of these negative things about Samson and to kind of imply that Samson was a pretty good guy and that he could be kind of emulated in some ways because of his strength and because of his bravery. That's how I absorbed the story of Samson when I was a kid. I don't know if it was taught to me that way, but that's definitely how I absorbed it. We just kind of strolled past all of the angry murdering and all of the toxic masculinity and all of the visits to prostitutes because here was a man. Here was a man's man, right, who stood up to those godless Philistines and he wasn't taking anything from anybody. So there, take that, hashtag Team Samson. That's one temptation. The other temptation is to disregard his story entirely and to say, this is primitive. This is primitive. Samson is too primitive, he's too misogynistic, and this whole thing is just too cartoonish. There's no redemption here, so let's just leave this story and move on. And as tempting as that might be, I think we'd be missing something if we took that approach also. I will be the first to admit that this is not the easiest text to write a sermon on, and I don't think I will ever try to do it ever again for the rest of my life. But his story does have a connection point for us. It does have a connection point for us. And here it is. Ready? Samson was a man who was driven by something that drives many of us. He was a man who was driven by revenge. Samson is a man who is driven by by revenge. His life was a rampage of revenge. His story 
starts out with him losing a bet at his wedding banquet because his first wife uh, betrayed him. So he loses a bet at his first wedding banquet. So as a result, he murdered 30 people, 30 people who literally had nothing to do with the bet or anything else. He just went out and murdered them. Um, Then, uh, in the next chapter, his father-in-law gave his wife, which apparently is something he could do, gave his wife to his best man, and that made Samson super angry. So he did what any of us would do. He found 300 foxes, he tied their tails together, he lit their tails on fire, and he sent them into grain fields. Then the Philistines came, and this is where we started reading, and they tried to arrest him, and he didn't like that. He didn't want to be arrested for the thing with the grain fields, so he killed a thousand people. Then his second wife tricked him because there's a whole new riddle thing that happens, and she tricked him. It took her like five or six tries, but she got him, and she had him arrested, so he pulled down the pillars in a pagan temple and killed thousands in one afternoon. It started with 30, then it was 1,000, and then it was thousands that he killed. That's the story of Samson. It was always about revenge. It was always about getting back to these people with interest what had been done to him. What causes someone to want to seek revenge? Where does revenge come from? Um, for someone to want to seek revenge, it seems to me a few, a few things are required. Uh, one, to seek revenge, you have to have a strong sense that you have been wronged, that you are the victim, and that someone else is the perpetrator. Secondly, to seek revenge you have to believe that you have been victimized more than others have been victimized. That the victimization is unequal and you have been victimized more. Third, you need to believe that it is well within your rights to unilaterally make right what has been wronged, to seek retribution against someone else because you have been victimized and that's your right to do so. And then fourth, you need to believe that doing violence to the person that has done violence to you will somehow bring restoration to the situation. Now, I don't know about you, I have never experienced the particular kind of loss that Samson did, but I do know what it feels like uh, to feel terribly wronged. And I've never run into the kind of conflict that Samson ran into, thankfully, but I do know what it's like to feel 1,000% justified in my anger. And I've never used the donkey, uh, the donkey of a jawbone, the jawbone of a donkey to get my revenge. Um, But I grew up in the Midwest, therefore my tool is passive aggression. I know there's some black belts, some fellow black belts in passive aggression here with me. And I've never set 300 foxes on fire in order to ruin a local economy, but I do know what it's like to believe that the revenge that I inflict will somehow magically make me feel better. But it doesn't, does it? 
no matter how many foxes you tie together and light on fire, it never makes you feel better. It just doesn't. Revenge never satisfies us the way that it promises us that it will. And that's the lie we believe. That's the lie that Samson believed. That's the lie that he told himself. And we so often tell ourselves when it, come to re- when it comes to revenge. We believe that there is such a thing as redemptive violence. We believe that we can right a situation by doing a wrong. We believe that we can bring good by performing and evil. We believe that we can redeem a violent and painful situation by causing more violence and pain. I once heard a psychologist talk about how uh, he, very, he works with people who are looking for revenge sometimes. And whenever he works with people who are looking for revenge, he'll say to them, how will you know that your revenge has worked? How will you know that whatever has to be satisfied has been satisfied? What, what will that feel like in you? What toggle will get switched? How will you know that you have accomplished what you meant to accomplish with all of this revenge? And he says, the psychologist says, that in all of his years of practicing psychology, he has never heard anyone adequately answer those questions. Never. He's never had someone who could clearly articulate how they would know when they got revenge. And so what happens, he says, is people just keep trying until that thing that never happens happens, and it doesn't ever happen. So they keep trying until that thing that never happens happens, and it doesn't happen. So they just keep trying. You see where this is going? Uh, I once heard Rob Bell make a comment uh, about a thing that we say. Um, You know how we're looking for revenge, and we say, oh, I'm going to teach him a lesson. And Rob Bell says, has that ever actually worked? Has anyone ever in all of human history, learned a lesson through revenge? For example, have you ever wronged somebody and then they wronged you back and you said, oh, thank you, my goodness. What a, what a teachable moment. I am so grateful. I have grown so much because you returned to me what I, oh, I'm so glad. Teaching lessons, that's a lie. That's a lie. We don't learn lessons that way. That's not how people learn. Has anyone's violence or nastiness ever opened up anyone's heart to anything? I doubt it. At least it hasn't happened for me. But the real problem with revenge is that it always keeps the pain and violence that we carry with us in circulation. Revenge recycles those things. This is what happens in the Samson story. It starts with a handful of people uh, cheating at a parlor game, guessing a riddle, and then it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it goes from 30 innocent people dying to a 1,000 innocent people dying to a temple full of people dying. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And the violence 
uh, uh, and the lies, it stays in circulation and it grows with interest until economies are ruined and families are murdered and a temple has fallen down over thousands of people. We allow the pain and the violence to stay in circulation because we believe the lie that there is such a thing as redemptive violence. That we can right a situation by doing a wrong. That we, we can perform good by, do, by performing an evil. That we can redeem a violent and painful situation by causing more violence and pain. But we can't. And this is why it seems to me that telling the story of Samson would be almost fruitless if we didn't also tell the story of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus is the story about the end of violence. And it's about the end of revenge. That's what Jesus does. In the climax of his life on the cross, he absorbs the last of the violence. He absorbs the last of the pain and the anger. And he puts an end to the need for revenge. This is why, um, like even if we just look at this from a secular perspective, which I think can be helpful for Christians sometimes, this is why even from a secular perspective, Jesus is such a revolutionary teacher for the whole world. Uh, For many of us, he's also a Lord and Savior, but he's a revolutionary teacher for the whole world. There's one scholar who's not a believer who says that until the time of Jesus, the myth of redemptive violence had been the engine of human history. Listen to that again. Until until the, the person of Jesus, the myth of redemptive violence had been the engine of human history. Back and forth, back and forth, again and again and again, growing and growing and growing with interest. And Jesus comes and he offers the the world a, a brand new way. He absorbs the violence. And he absorbs the anger. And then from a non-secular perspective, from a Christian perspective, for those of us for whom Jesus is also our Lord and Savior, he's not just a teacher, and he's not just a proponent of a a non-violent path, but he's also the divine Son of God who is powerful enough to tip the scales of the universe toward peace. Now that's something I can get excited to preach about. (laughs) This might be my last Samson sermon, but I'll preach again about Jesus. Maybe the best reason to study the story of Samson is to better understand the depth of our own brokenness and the futility of our own attempts at revenge and our need for someone to take all of the world's pain and all of the world's violence out of circulation. If Samson were here today, there are three things that I would want to tell him. So I'm going to preach really hard at Samson for a second, and if it applies to you in any way, just go ahead and insert yourself, okay? First of all, Samson, 
to quote another pastor, it's time to drop the jawbone. It's time to drop the jawbone. You're chasing a revenge fantasy that will never come true, Samson. The holy rage that you feel in your guts is actually very, very unholy. You will never come to a place where you found that you did just the right amount of violence. Do you hear what a strange phrase that is? Just the right amount of violence? You'll never get there. It's an illusion. So stop right now, Team Samson, hashtag Team Samson, and drop the jawbone. Secondly, Samson, you need to see what the rest of us see, and it's this. You are the donkey, Samson. You are the donkey. There's that, that clever little poem in verse 16 that somehow rhymes in English. Is that the one that rhymes in English? Uh, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys out of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. By the way, um, this is the one time in my 13 years of ministry where I wish we used the King James Version (laughs) because they use a word for donkey that works way better right here, okay? (laughs) If you know, you know, okay? (laughs) You are the donkey, Samson. You are the donkey. You got cheated out of a bet. Bummer. But now you're celebrating the death of people? Nope. The scales of justice, Samson, that you have in your head are way off. You think you're doing what's right. You think you're holding the world accountable, a chaotic world accountable, but you're not. You're ruining your life and you're ruining the lives of so many people around you. You are the donkey. Number three. If you thought that was preachy, listen to this one, okay? Number three. Samson, I don't know how else to put this, but you need Jesus. Like, really, really bad, Samson. You need Jesus. Have you ever heard the story of someone who so desperately needed the pain in their life to be absorbed? To have their violence taken out of circulation? Imagine Samson standing beneath the cross of Jesus as Jesus says to the Father about his enemies, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. I like to imagine Samson having an epiphany. Oh, they know not what they're doing. They know not what they're doing. Friends, we know not what we're doing. Hurt people hurt people. And hurt people know not what they're doing. Samson needs Jesus. I need Jesus. Black belts and passive aggression aggression need Jesus. We all need Jesus. 
to help us to turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus says. To help us bless those who curse us. And to help us overcome evil with good. And thankfully, as is the case with Samson, God does incredibly well with really broken people. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, the most powerful and profound spiritual reality we could ever encounter is simply our need for you. And so today, we look inside of ourselves, we look into this text about Samson, and we encounter that reality very starkly. We have in us, Lord Jesus, this strange and irrational desire for revenge. We have this idea in our heads that the world is somehow against us, and that we've been so terribly wronged. And for many of us, Father, maybe most of us, maybe all of us in this room, we so quickly lose track of the reality of the great, great privilege, actually, that is ours. Humble us, Lord Jesus. Help us to see the hurt people around us as the hurt people that they actually are. And help us, Father, to forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done for us and are doing for us what we cannot and could not do for ourselves. And so we give ourselves over to you, over to your grace. We surrender whatever ridiculous idea we have uh, that we deserve some kind of justice. Um, And we, with uh, the power of your spirit, as best we can muster, offer the forgiveness of sins to others and ask for the same for ourselves. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.